Welcome to this week's message from Rabbi Kevin Solomon, Senior Rabbi of Congregation Beth Hillel in Roswell, Georgia. Beth Hillel is one of the largest Messianic Jewish synagogues in the world and provides a place where Jewish people can find the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus in Hebrew, and retain their Jewishness. It's also where Gentiles worship and embrace the roots of the faith in drawing closer to God. Click the link in the description to support this ministry or to view our YouTube channel. Let's join Rabbi Kevin now as he shares this word from Scripture. Our rabbi is out of town at the moment, blessing another congregation in a wondrous ceremony at a new building dedication. So he sends his best. He's left us in amazing hands. We have Ravi Goldberg speaking to us. He's spoken to us a couple of times before. He's an amazing person. Just some information about Ravi. He grew up in the Messianic uh, movement. He's the current an esteemed president of the Young Messianic Jewish Alliance of America, the YMJA. He moved from Florida recently, February 2022, to make Georgia, Atlanta area, CBH, his full-time home. He has been a part of our congregation in the past. He's, he's a basically a mishpacha. He is mishpacha, um, even back in the day. Uh, he is... Uh, very excited, and we're very excited to hear from him. Let's all give a warm welcome to our Mishpacha, Ravi. Uh, thank you so much, Mark. It's great to be with you on this Shabbat, and uh, it's a special blessing for me because this week's Torah portion is actually the portion that my dad read in his bar mitzvah and the portion that one of my sisters read at her bat mitzvah. So it has a special place in my heart. And as I read the portion, what hits me is how God's word relates to our lives. When I read this portion, I think about times in my life where I have felt uncertainty, where there's just a lot of changes going on around me. There have been times where I felt like, okay, I've got some major decisions ahead of me, and there's a lot of options to choose from, and I don't want to choose the wrong one, and, and being paralyzed by all the options and trying to get it right. And there are times when, as I look at the changes around me or the decisions ahead, I just feel stuck, like I, I, I won't be able to move from where I currently am and currently how things are going. And what I love about this portion is for the times that I feel that way and the times that we can feel one of these different ways, the truth of this Torah portion brings so much life into our situation. If you read the Torah portion, it's got some things in there as you read it that you can be like, this was definitely not written to 21st century America. If you read the portion, there'll be things that you find in there and read, you'll be like, okay, you can definitely tell that this was written to a community thousands of years ago in the Middle East, a whole different culture, whole different set of things. But as we read it, there is timeless truth in there that can anchor our lives and liberate us from fear today to help us move forward when we feel stuck, to give us clarity when wrestling with different options, 
and to help us make sense uh, in times of uncertainty. So if you want to turn with me over to the Torah portion, we'll begin in Genesis chapter 24. And in verse 15, we're introduced to Rebecca. Now, Rebecca is at an age where many of her friends are getting married. And I don't know what questions she has about her life and her future and what's ahead for her. But one day as she's walking from her home to the well in her community, a stranger stops her and asks her for a small request. He asks her for a sip of water from the jug of water that she's carrying. But what she doesn't know is this small interruption, this small request is going to change the entire trajectory of her life. She doesn't know that this man who interrupts her with this request is a man who's been sent on a mission, that he manages all of the wealth for Abraham. And Abraham was super wealthy with owning tons of camels and herds, owned tons of assets. And this man oversaw all of it for him. He oversaw all the people he worked for Abraham. And Abraham had sent him on a mission to go find a wife for his son, to find a wife for Abraham's son. Because while he managed the family business, it was more business than family. It was a huge business. But at this point, with Sarah having just died, the family that's together is just Abraham and his 40-year-old unmarried son. And so he sends, he sends his top guy on this mission to find a wife for Isaac. And so when he goes up, he's the one who meets Rebecca. And he asks her for a sip of water. And it's just a small request. And she says yes. But then she offers to water his camels. And it says he has 10 camels. Like this is over an hour of work. It's like I picture I'm on my porch and somebody drives up in an RV. And they say they're here to visit my neighbor, but the neighbor isn't home yet. And they ask me for a cup of water. And when I bring them a bottle of water, I also offer to wash their RV. It's like a small request, and then she offers to go beyond it. And what she doesn't know is that this man on a mission, right before he met her, he had just prayed, God, lead me to the right person. And then when I ask her for a drink of water, she would also offer to water my camels. She has no idea that this small interruption is going to change the entire trajectory of her life. And it reminds me of my parents' story. Before my mom and dad had gotten together, my mom had been engaged twice. And both times, uh, it broke up. They broke up, and it fell apart in a really painful way. And after the second engagement had broken up, she uh, moved in with the family. And she felt like she was regressing in her life, going from being engaged to being single, going from living in her, on her own in an apartment to living with a family at her church. She felt like she was going backwards in life. But one day when she came home from teaching elementary school, she got home and the mother of the family she was living with asked to pray for her and for her future spouse. And while they're praying together, the mother has a vision of a man with a beard, shoulder-length hair, and a blue pinstripe suit. And so she shares the vision, and they keep on going with their lives. But meanwhile, a few hours away, also in central New York State, uh, my dad is working for Jonathan Burness as his youth rabbi and speaking in churches for him. And Jonathan pulls him aside and says, Ron, if you're going to work for me, you're going to have to dress well. If you're going to represent the congregation, you've got to dress classy. So he takes him out. He buys him a suit. He takes the money out of his paycheck. 
And he says, whenever you speak on behalf of the congregation, you need to wear this suit. Well, a few months later, my dad is invited to speak at a church that happened to be my mom's church. But that day, Jonathan isn't home. Jonathan just wasn't my dad's uh, rabbi. He was also his roommate. But this Sunday, Jonathan was not home. And my dad is thinking as he's getting ready, he's like, this is a casual church. The pastor, he preaches in a polo shirt and jeans. If I were to come in a suit, it just would not mesh with the culture. I would just stick out. It's not going to work well. So he's, he grabs another pair of clothes, and he feels God just prompt him, wear the suit. And he starts wrestling with God in, in his closet, going back and forth, arguing with him. He's like, God, your word says man looks at the appearance, but you look at the heart. And he starts quoting scripture at God, and God just says, wear the suit. And after 20 minutes, my dad gives up, gives in, puts on the suit. And later that day, he walks across the stage, and the woman immediately recognizes him as, a, as the man with a beard, shoulder-length hair, and a blue pinstripe suit. And my dad had no idea that when he had this prompting from God to wear the suit, it was going to change the entire trajectory of his life. And as I reflect on my parents' story and as I reflect on Rebecca's story, the first thing that hits me that I'm challenged for us is to make room for divine interruptions. In this case, in this case, it isn't this crazy thing that God asked of them. In my dad's case, it's just respect authority, respect who you're working for. In Rebecca's case, it's offering a generous act of hospitality. It's something that already aligns with things in Scripture, something that God teaches, but they just had this sudden prompting, this sudden conviction to do something that's already in the Word of God. And they made a room for a divine interruption. And when they do this, I, I, I see how when we make room for divine interruptions, God can do things we can never anticipate. And I wonder what would happen in my life and our lives if more and more often we invited God to interrupt our lives, where we're interacting with people in the synagogue and we notice somebody in need and God prompts us to help them in a way that's inconvenient for us. I wonder what would happen if we made room for a divine interruption. If we're at work or school and we're going about our day, our busy work day, and God prompts us to have a spiritual conversation with someone, I wonder what could happen if we made room for a divine interruption. And I don't know what could happen, but as I look at my parents' story, as I look at the story of Rebecca, I'm challenged to make room for divine interruptions. And for me, it's, it's, it's been difficult in my life. Usually in my life, it's like I see an interruption like a crying baby. I want to stick a pacifier in its mouth and deal with it as soon as possible and move on. But I get this picture that God is inviting me to more. And as I look at my life, one of the things I've recently been convicted about is that I just didn't have margin in my room, margin in my life to make room for a divine interruption. That if I schedule my life so closely together, everything, I might be doing good things. But if I try to force my life to fit in a way where I don't have time for God to interrupt, I've been convicted that that is actually something that God wants me to move away from. And my life can be filled with good things, but he wants me to live at a pace where, like Yeshua led his life, I'm open to divine interruptions. And it's the first challenge that I hear as I, as I read this Torah portion to make room for divine interruptions like Rebecca did. 
But Rebecca is not the only person in this pivotal moment that changes her life. The other person is this servant who meets her. And it's interesting to me, the servant is never named. It calls him the servant of Abraham, the servant, the man, never names him. And in scripture, names are important. They tell you a lot about a person. In earlier chapters in the Torah, it gives a name for the servant. But in this Torah portion, it never names him, not once. And it's like Moses, as he's writing this down, is trying to tell us something. That in this portion, the most important thing about this man is his dedication to his master. That he's committed to staying faithful to his master. And that's the second thing I'm challenged with in this portion, to stay faithful. In this case, this servant, he has nothing to gain. The inheritance of Abraham is not going to be his. There's no immediate reward for finding a wife for Isaac. And there's no long-term legacy. There's nothing he gains in the end by achieving his mission. He's building the name and the family of Abraham so that the family can continue past Isaac. And yet he has nothing to gain, no immediate reward, and yet he stays faithful. He stays faithful even though there's no pressure. Abraham, when he sends him out, he tells him, God is going to go before you and he's going to lead you to the right person. But if she says no, you're free from this oath. There's no pressure. He has no pressure to do it. And yet he stays faithful. And as he's going on this mission, he doesn't stop for any delays, for any distractions, or for any diversions. When he gets there, when he meets Rebecca, when they have this divine encounter, this divine interruption, she then brings him back to her family so he can tell them. And they welcome him in. They have this huge home-cooked meal. And he's just traveled from modern-day Israel to modern-day Iraq. I mean, this is a long journey. This is his first home-cooked meal that he can sit down and really enjoy. And yet what he tells them is, I can't eat until I first tell you what's going on. No delays. He's on a mission. And then after the meal, when he tells the family and they work things out, they ask if Rebecca can wait 10 days before she goes with him. And he says no. He has this sense of urgency that he's not going to stop for any delays, any distractions, or any diversions. He's on this mission because his identity is in his dedication to his master. But what hits me as I read that is then how do I tell the difference between a divine interruption and a distraction? Between a divine interruption and a diversion that's going to get me off track. How do I tell the difference? And as I look at this passage, there's two things that come to mind for me as I look at the difference between a divine interruption and a distraction. The first is to let God's desires direct our priorities. What I notice is earlier in the Torah, in Genesis 12, God says that his heart's desire is to make Abraham into a great nation and to give him descendants who are going to inherit the land he's giving them and to bring a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is God's desire. And this desire of God is guiding this servant's priorities in his mission. The second thing is to let God's truth shape our boundaries. Rebecca's family says, let her stay with us for a few days or 10. And at first, to me, that seems just like a minor, reasonable request. And so I have to ask myself, why does the servant say no? And I can't know for sure, 
But as I think about it, I wonder if he's allowing God's truth to shape his boundaries and their boundaries. It also says in Genesis that when a man and a, and a woman get married, they're to, to leave their families, to cleave to one another, and to start a new life together. And I wonder if he has this kind of thing in mind, that as Rebecca is now engaged, she has a new relationship. She's entering a new life. And as she's doing that and making this transition from her family into starting a new family, staying and delaying this is just going to make it difficult. And it's not a healthy boundary for her as she begins to establish this new relationship in this new life. And I wonder if he has that in mind to allow God's truth to shape their boundaries. Also, one of the interesting things is they say, let her stay with us a few days or 10. And it's kind of a vague boundary. And I wonder if he thinks about it, that maybe this family, because they don't allow God's desires to direct their priorities, or in this family, they have other gods. And so then it's not God's truth shaping their boundaries. I wonder if he can tell that this is kind of a vague thing and an unhealthy thing. And that maybe that there's a little bit of untrustworthiness here because of that. Later on, uh, Rebecca's family are going to meet a man named Jacob, and they'll tell him to work for him for seven years, and then the seven years will turn into 14 years. And I don't know if he can get an idea for the family dynamic yet of what's going on in their family, but I, I wonder if he's putting these tests to use, that when he's telling the difference between a divine interruption and a distraction, if he's using these tests of letting God's desires direct his priorities and letting God's truth shape his boundaries. And I don't fully know what's going on in his mind, but what I do know is he has this resolution that he cannot be delayed, distracted, or diverted from his mission. As I think about this, I think about a few years ago, I was listening to two ministry leaders uh, who both happened at this time to be adopting children from the foster care system and adopting children with disabilities and special needs. And they were saying, you know, we were in ministry, they were leading congregations, and they said, you'd think we would be focused on only doing things that are going to increase attendance, that are going to get more volunteers for our congregations, that are going to bring up giving. And yet this thing would seem like it's not going to help you in your ministries, it's not going to help you in growing in your congregation. Isn't that just a distraction? And yet for them, they had this conviction to let God's desires direct their priorities. That God's desire is to be a father to the fatherless and to use his people for that. That they had this conviction to allow God's truth to shape their boundaries. Where God says true religion is to care for widows and orphans in their time of need. And as I see about them, they had this chance to say, oh no, caring for these children is just a diversion or distraction. But because they allowed God's desires to direct their priorities and they allowed God's truth to shape their boundaries, they could tell this wasn't a distraction. This was a mission given to them by our Father. But the thing about it is that raising kids and especially raising kids who have come from the foster care system and all of the pain that goes into that history, children with disabilities and all of the extra care and time and attention that is, that is needed, this is not easy. And the question for me is, as we stay faithful, is how do we stay faithful when it's hard? How do we stay faithful when it's difficult? How do we persevere in staying faithful to the end? And as I look at what the servant says to Rebecca's family, 
when he sits down with them at dinner. He, he says, I can't eat until I tell you this. There's three things he says that hits me about what maybe helped him stay faithful to his master. The first thing he says that is that I am Abraham's servant and God has blessed him. The first thing he says, he doesn't give them his name. He tells them he's Abraham's servant. The first thing I see is that his identity is in his master. And that I think for us, as we want to stay faithful to our master, to our rabbi Yeshua, that the first thing is to make sure that our identity is in him. It's in his ability. It's in his greatness. It's in what he has accomplished, what he has done, not in ourselves and what we've accomplished, our abilities or what we've done. And that when our identity is in our master, we don't have to wrestle with these things and try to do things to try to obtain our identity or to enhance it or to reinforce it. But that it empowers us to stay faithful when our identity is in our master. The second thing he tells them is that my master has told me that if the woman says no, I'm freed from the oath, that there's no pressure, there's grace. And the second thing I see about staying faithful is to do it from a place of grace, that his grace empowers us, that God is not a harsh taskmaster. I think so often what leads me wrong in my relationship with God or gets me weary in my faith or makes it harder for me is that I see God as a harsh taskmaster who's disappointed in me and sees my failures of every second. And yet, while God sees everything, that is not how he describes who he is in the scriptures. In the Brich Hadashah, Yeshua, there's only one place where he really describes himself in his heart, and he says that he's gentle and lowly. When Moses is encountering God and he asks him to show him his glory, the first thing he says is about his abounding love for a thousand generations. That he's a God of justice, a God who holds us accountable, and yet his posture is not a harsh taskmaster. And I think the second thing is we want to stay faithful to our master is to understand his grace and his heart. That just like Abraham's servant doesn't have this pressure bearing down from Abraham. God is not bearing down on us with this unbearable pressure, but he's coming to us with grace. The third thing I see from this servant and what he tells Rebecca's family, and the last thing he says to them is that, tell me if you're going to show loyalty and truth to my master or if I should go somewhere else. And this last thing that I see is that he sees his master as worthy of loyalty and truth. And the question, and the thing I see as I look at this is for us to stay faithful, is to see our master as worthy. That one of the most key things about our ability to stay faithful is how we view God. In this case, this is a servant of Abraham, and we're servants of Yeshua. But Yeshua says that in his kingdom, the greatest of all is the servant of all. That as we follow Yeshua, he is worthy of our lives, worthy of our service, worthy of our dedication, because he is the greatest servant of all. There is no one who loves us more, no one who is kinder, no one who is more trustworthy, no one who is more faithful, 
no one who is more sacrificial. And when we see that he is worthy, that can sustain us to stay faithful when it's difficult. That like this servant, we can stay faithful if our identity is in our, in our master, if we receive his grace, and if we see that he is worthy. And because of these things, this servant is able to stay faithful even when he has nothing to gain, even when there is no pressure, and that he is not going to stop for anything. And so the servant shares these things with Rebecca's family. And when he shares with them the story, they all arrange the marriage. But then they want that delay of a few days or 10, and the servant isn't going for it. And so the decision falls into Rebecca's hands about whether she's going to go with the servant and marry Isaac or, or not. And when she has to make the decision, Rebecca says, I will go. In the Hebrew, it's the same words that Ruth says to Naomi when she says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. And there I'll be buried. And when Rebecca says, I will go, it's the same words. And in effect, Rebecca is saying the same things. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay there and be buried. In this Torah portion, like Mark read for us, Sarah dies and is buried. Abraham is buried in that same place. Isaac is going to be buried in that same place. And because Rebecca says these words, she also is going to be buried in that same place. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. But maybe the most critical thing Ruth says is that your God will be my God. And ultimately, this is what it comes down to. Not just choosing the right options, but choosing the real God. Choosing the real God. Abraham knows this. And so when he has to think about the future of his family, he tells his servant, I need you to go and find a wife for my son and bring her back here. Because he says he can't marry into the families of the Canaanites here, but he also can go back and settle in the old country that we're from. Because Abraham knows that if he does these things, he's going to begin to eventually follow those gods. And we see this over and over again in Scripture. Who you marry, that's an important choice. And when you choose the real God, who you choose to marry matters. In this week's Torah portion, like Mark read for us, where we see Solomon and we see how Solomon is solidified as the king of Israel and solidified on the throne. And it's a great story. But then a few chapters later in 1 Kings 11, it then says that Solomon marries 700 wives and 300 concubines. Probably not God's will for his life. And so the writer of 1 Kings tells us that Solomon missed it. Because over and over again, God repeats to his people, if you marry people with other gods, it's only a matter of time before your heart turns away from me. And Abraham knows this. And that's why he says they can't have Isaac marry from a Canaanite in their new home, or because then he'll embrace, if he marries one of the people from the Canaanite families in their new home, he'll ultimately embrace these new gods in that new home. And if he goes back to the old country where he was from and settles there again, it's only a matter of time before he picks up those same old gods that his family used to worship and that he gives up the promises of God for a land and the life that he has for him. And so Abraham knows this, that when you choose the real God, 
it then matters who you choose to marry. My mom had to make the same choice. Before she was engaged to my dad, my grandparents were working on an arranged marriage for her into the royal family of Bhutan. And when they told my mom, she told them, I appreciate what you're doing. I love my Indian heritage and these traditions, and I'm willing to go along with this, but only if I marry a believer. And that put an end to it because this was going to be a Hindu arranged marriage. But my mom knew that if she married into the royal family of Bhutan, it might mean a life of luxury and comfort, but that ultimately it would turn her away from God. She knew that if she went back there, she would go back to the old gods in her life. When my family, my Indian family, moved to the United States, my family then embraced new gods, and what became the god to my family was education. And this is what my grandparents would always tell my mom and her siblings and all of us grandkids. They would say, we were poor in India. In fact, we were so poor that our friends told us, look, you can't afford dowries for your four daughters to get married in the future. You can't afford it. It's too expensive. You just have to leave them on the streets to die. Infanticide is a problem, was especially a problem back then in India. But my grandparents said, there has to be a better way. And so they turned to education. My grandfather got a PhD in genetics and moved to the United States and became a professor and was able to bring his family over. And what he told us time and time again was that education saved me from poverty. Education saved your lives. And that if you embrace higher education, it'll lead to a good job, a good life, and the American dream. And education became the God and Savior in my family. When my mom met my dad and then uh, he proposed, she had to make another choice. Was she going to marry this Messianic rabbi, join to a life of ministry and dedication to the Jewish people and moving to Rochester? Or was she going to accept her recent admission into a doctorate of education program at SUNY Buffalo? She had to make a choice between the new God in our family, education, and the real God. And I'm grateful that my mom chose the real God. And in life, we have to make so many choices. But ultimately, what it comes down to is not just choosing the right options, but choosing the real God. Because when we choose the real God and let go of the other gods that can influence our lives, then a lot of the other options wither away. And even when there's multiple options still left on the table, we can know and trust in what it says in Romans 8.28, that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And if you, cho if you choose the real God, you don't have to be paralyzed by the fear of making the wrong choices and choosing the wrong options in life. Because if you choose the real God, he'll lead you. He gives us principles in his word. He gives us people who can give us solid advice. And he gives us the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. So it comes down to choosing the real God. My mom had to make that choice, and Rebecca had to make that choice in this Torah portion. And yet, as I look at the Torah portion, I have to ask myself, what if I make mistakes and make the wrong choice? What happens from when the times in my life that I chose the wrong options? What happens then? In this Torah portion, Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, 
The interesting thing is it ends with talking about Ishmael. When I see Ishmael, I think of what was maybe Sarah's greatest mistake about something she decided to do and have done in her family that led to so much dysfunction and brokenness and pain that severed relationships. And I think about the wrong choice that she made. And I have to ask God, what then, when we make wrong choices that bring so much pain, what then? But I'm fascinated by how this Torah portion ends. It says that after Sarah dies, Abraham finds another wife and he has many more sons. But it tells us that when Abraham dies, only two sons come back to bury him. Isaac and Ishmael. And I don't know the full story of what was going on with them at that point. Obviously, there was still a lot of tension in their relationships. There's still a lot of tension in the family that continues thousands of years later to today. But what I know is that as I read this, that at the same time, there's something there. And the interesting thing is it mentions every single time it, it says Isaac and Ishmael. It calls them by name. Like I mentioned earlier, names are important in Scripture. In the previous Torah portion, it never refers to Ishmael by his name. Not once. It always says the son of the slave woman. Every single time. And in that previous Torah portion, Moses is making a point. But in this portion, by only calling Ishmael by his name, Moses is making a different point. The personhood of Ishmael. That Ishmael is a person made in the image of God. And that while Sarah made a mistake, and while she made the wrong choice, Ishmael is not a mistake. He is made in the image of God. And yet, even with everything that happens to this family, there's this hint of redemption at the end of this Torah portion where it describes Ishmael and how they become a nation. And the words hearken back to promises God made before that he would turn Ishmael into a great nation. There's these hints of redemption at the end of this portion. And these hints of God keeping his promises. And it shows us that in life, when we make the wrong choice, when we choose bad options, it does lead to pain. There are consequences. It does lead to brokenness when we choose wrong options and choose other gods and allow them to influence us. And that's why God wants us to choose him and to choose life. But when we choose the real God, he can redeem our past. And that's the legacy of Chaye Sarah, the legacy of the life of Sarah. Because the truth is that God works everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And when we love him and are called according to his purpose, we're freed and empowered to make room for divine interruptions because he will work it out. We're freed and empowered to stay faithful because in the end, he will work it out. And when we choose the real God, we can know that in the end, he will work it out. It's the legacy of Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah. It's the legacy of Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah. And it's the legacy that God invites us into when we trust in Yeshua and join ourselves to him and to his purposes as the King Messiah 
of our people. And if you'll join me in prayer, I'll pray for us that this can be the legacy of our lives. Father, we thank you that you are a God of redemption. That as we look at Sarah's life and we see her mistakes, we see that you're a God who brings redemption. Father, thank you that like Rebecca and Isaac and the servant, that because of what you have done for us, we can make room for the divine interruptions you bring into our lives. That because you are worthy, we can stay faithful. And because you work all things for good, we can have the shalom to choose you, the real God. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shabbat shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Rabbi Kevin. Please like, subscribe, and share this link with a friend. We would be grateful to receive your tax-deductible gift to further the good news of Messiah Yeshua. To make a contribution, please click on the PayPal link in the description. Also, to view our regular services, click the link in the description for our YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Yeshua the Messiah or how you can become part of our Bethlehem family, please visit our website at www.bethlehem.com. Org. That's B-E-T-H-H-A-L-L-E-L dot O-R-G. Or call 770-641-3000. If you are in the metro Atlanta area, please visit us for an Arab Shabbat service, Friday nights at 8 o'clock, or Shabbat services, Saturday mornings at 11. God bless and shalom. Nine, 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 nine.